You're listening to a 3CR podcast of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Radio MMT respectfully acknowledges the traditional custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting, the Wurundjeri people. Radio MMT. Economics for the rest of us with Anne and Kev. Radio MMT. Looking at the world through the lens of modern monetary theory. Radio MMT. Macroeconomics for a well-being economy. Macroeconomics? Like, isn't that incredibly boring? No, Kevin, it's incredibly interesting. It's all about who gets what and why. Who gets what and why? Okay, I'm in. Radio MMT at gmail.com. Incredibly interesting macroeconomics for the rest of us. Welcome to Radio MMT. This is our second edition of Radio MMT, and uh, after our first uh, episode with Professor Bill Mitchell. Hello, Kevin. And you can always catch that episode uh, as a podcast. Yes, 3cr.org.au forward slash Radio MMT. This week, Anne, I believe that we're going right back to basics, and we're starting with an explanation of money which is what comes from modern monetary theory. In speaking with modern monetary theory economists, we have talked a lot about money. And MMT does tell us that understanding money is basic to understanding how our economy works. So if you do not understand how money works, you might be misled into thinking like a neoliberal. Yes. You might believe that we need these horribly, unnecessarily damaging things like austerity. But of course, uh, before we start with the segment on uh, on the explanation of money, a description of what money is, we're hoping to have a regular segment. Letter from the Cape. Excellent. It's time for a Letter from the Cape with economist Bill, Bill Mitchell. Hello, I'm Bill Mitchell. I've loved 3CR ever since it began broadcasting in 1976. I work as a professor of economics at the universities of Newcastle and Helsinki, and I'm also an international professorial fellow at Kyoto University in Japan. I'm one of the founders of Modern Monetary Theory, and I'm really grateful to Anne and Kevin for this program, which will advance our collective understanding of economic matters and how they impact on our daily lives. In this regular segment, I aim to discuss these matters and help increase your economic literacy and equip you with knowledge so that you'll be better able to assess statements you read or hear in the news from politicians, economists, corporate mouthpieces and the like. I'll help you understand the fictional world that mainstream economists have created which serves to advance the interests of a small section of our society at the expense of most of us. More importantly, I will offer an alternative economic narrative based upon the reality that is before us. Achieving a better understanding of the capacities of our government and the consequences of using those capacities means you will ask different questions about economic policy and accept different answers. The aim is to move us all in a direction where we can achieve real change to advance societal well-being When I was young, I loved listening to Letter from America from the English correspondent Alistair Cook, which was broadcast on the BBC's World Service every week. He would speak with a mellifluous tone on topical issues in the US. As a youngster, I was entranced by radio in general and this program specifically. It proved to be the longest-running speech radio segment hosted by one individual in history running from 1946 to 2004. Alistair Cook died in March 2004, just after illness forced his retirement from his program. Cook is also relevant to our themes here because after he died and before he was cremated, thieves from a private-for-profit tissue recovery firm removed his bones intending to on-sell them to bone graft companies. The crooks even altered his death certificate to mask the fact he died of cancer 
which would have made his bones worthless for this purpose anyway. Fortunately, they were later caught and imprisoned, which is a rare outcome in the world of corporate crime and fraud. But what it signals is that decision-making that is driven by a profit motive is rarely going to lead to outcomes that benefit the many. So why are we calling this segment A Letter from the Cape? Well, as I unpack the topical issues about society and economics for you, I want to create a sense of hope rather than despair. The topics we will talk about, poverty, unemployment, overdevelopment, real wage cuts, corporate greed, environmental decay and more, typically leave us in a state of anxiety and a deep uncertainty about our own futures. The founder of the American social security system, Arthur Altemeyer, said that what motivates us to high endeavour is hope, not fear. In the aftermath of the Great Depression of the 1930s, which had ravaged the prosperity of communities and left the disadvantaged in abject poverty, Altemeyer fought hard to create even a minimalist system of social protection in the US because he thought that social security substitutes hope for fear. Change can occur if we come together armed with knowledge and demand that it happens. The Cape is a property development at Cape Patterson, about 130 kilometres southeast of Melbourne on the beautiful Bunurong coast. Why would I want to mention that? Well, it is a property development like nothing else in Australia. It has been called Australia's most sustainable housing estate and evolved from an old dairy farm that had leached the land of its nutrients and created an environmental wasteland. Most developers, the profit-obsessed ones, would have put over 900 wall-to-wall homes on that site, a sea of roofs and concrete, a massive heat sink with no redeeming qualities. The Cape developers, however, are allowing a little over 200 houses, all of which will be close to 10 stars in energy efficiency and designed for the future to reduce the carbon footprint on the environment. The rest of the land is being restored with waterways, secure habitat areas for the native animals, walking and bike paths, and a huge community farm that will provide food security. MMT Ed, which is sponsoring this segment, will locate there soon. But the point is that the Cape is emblematic of an alternative approach to life, which not only enhances community well-being, but also as a guide to how we start dealing with the climate problems that the degradation of our land and water has created in search of private profit. The Cape symbolises for me the hope that can be engendered through change. This segment hopes to operate in that tradition. I'll be back next time to talk about MMT and the polycrisis. Kevin, I did not know that story about Alistair Cook's bones. <laughs> Boy. Which is not the first time I've heard about the illegal trade in body parts. I think grave digging would be a fascinating topic for a microeconomic show. Anyway, the story of money. Let's have a listen. On this show, we use a school of economic thought known as modern monetary theory or MMT. MMT challenges what most of us have been taught about money. So today we'll revisit past conversations to explore four helpful images for thinking about money. The first image is the origin story of money, or what MMT is called the money story. The second image is money as an IOU. The third image is thinking of the monetary system as a pyramid of IOUs. And the fourth image is thinking of money as functioning like points in a football game. Franklin for 12, 13, 13! He's kicked 13 on the side! 
Once you're across these four ideas about money, you're pretty well inoculated against neoliberal thinking. If you're thinking that the Australian Federal Government needs to repeal the Stage 3 tax cuts before it can increase the rate of unemployment benefits, then you are locked into neoliberal thinking. They've got you right where they want you. On the job seeker rate, you are the Minister for Social Services. ACOS has called for a big increase. Is that something that you are looking at? Well, look, we've been really clear about the rate of job seeker. Current Social Services Minister Amanda Rishworth speaking with Patricia Carvellis on ABC's Radio National Breakfast, broadcast 30th of August 2022. We've been really clear that um, at the moment um, in the October budget, this is not something that we're going to proceed with. Of course, as we've said, we'll assess it at budget by budget. Um, and if there is room in the budget, of course, uh, that that's how we have to deal with a whole lot of competing measures. So, look, that's that's the challenge of being given or inheriting a trillion dollars worth of debt. Let's start with the story of money. Understanding the story of money is key to breaking out of the neoliberal mindset that we have all been indoctrinated into. The story of money is the story of the origin of a national currency. It is a story that a 10-year-old could understand. Let me tell you a story. This is a story as old as civilization itself. So grab your favorite cuppa, sit back, take a deep breath in and slowly out. Relax and let me tell you the story of money. Once upon a time, there was a king. He wasn't much of a king as he didn't have any kingly stuff. He didn't have a crown, he didn't have a castle, and he didn't have a red carpet. The king sought out the man in the village said to be best at working metal. The king said, make me a crown. The man replied, I have no time to make you a crown. I am busy hoeing my garden to feed my family. The king sought out the man in the village said to lay fine stone walls. The king said, Make me a castle. The man replied, I have no time to make you a castle. I am too busy ploughing my fields so my family can eat. The king went on to a man in the village, said to weave fine cloth. The king said, Make me a red carpet. The man replied, I have no time to make you a red carpet. I am too busy tending my goats and sheep so my family may eat. The king went away and thought long and hard about how he might get the stuff he needed to become a proper king. One day the king heard about seven brothers who lived in a village seven leagues away. Each of the brothers was as strong as seven oxen. Each brother was so strong he could uproot a tall oak tree with his bare hands. Each brother could lift a man off the ground using just his thumb and forefinger. Boy, put me down. The king travelled to the village where lived the seven brothers. Along the way, he stopped by a river bank of clay. The king fashioned some clay into many little balls. He flattened each with his unique thumbprint. When they were dried, he put them in his pocket and travelled on. The king met with the seven brothers and said, You are good strong men, but you all live in hovels. You live on dry bread and sour beer, and none of you is married. Join your fortunes to mine, and I will give you a mansion each, and as much fine food and wine as you can stomach, and a pretty maid each for a wife. All you need do is enforce some new rules 
I have made for the villagers. Well, I don't think the brothers were paying much attention to that last part. They had already thrown in their lot with the king at the mention of fine food. The seven brothers followed the king back to his village. The king went to the man who was skilled at working metal and said, I will pay you ten rouble doubles to make me a crown. He showed the man a flattened clay ball from his pocket. What need have I for these worthless clay balls, asked the man, said the king. I forgot to mention I have made a new rule. Come year's end, you must pay me ten rouble doubles, or these fine gentlemen here will tear you apart limb from limb. The man shook in his shoes and got to work making the king's crown. The king went to the man known for his fine stonework and said, I will pay you ten rouble doubles to make me a castle. He showed the man a flattened ball of clay from his pocket. What need have I for these worthless clay balls? asked the man. Said the king, I have made a new rule. Come year's end, you must pay me ten of these rouble doubles, or these fine gentlemen will tear you apart with their bare hands. The man quaked in his boots and got to work making the king's castle. The king had a similar conversation with the man who was a fine weaver and who was soon weaving the king a red carpet. And so the king and the seven brothers went around the entire village. And the king paid the villagers rouble doubles to provision the seven brothers with all the fine things he had promised them. When the young women saw how rich these strong men were, there was no shortage of pretty maids willing to become their wives. By the end of the year, the king had a fine crown, a splendid castle, and a plush red carpet. Each villager paid the king ten rouble doubles, which the king put in a bucket of water to dissolve the clay balls. The king had plenty more clay to make as many balls as he wished. The king also made another rule, which stated, no one else might make clay balls to resemble his. If they did, they would be torn limb from limb for counterfeiting the king's unit of account. Many villagers wanted extra work to earn extra rouble doubles. They could foresee a year when some misfortune might befall, and they would be unable to earn the ten rouble doubles to pay the king and stay out of trouble. The king happily paid out more rouble doubles than he collected so the villagers might make these savings. And so more often than not, the king was in deficit. The men who were skilled at metalwork and stonework and weaving found they could spend all their time making these fine items. They happily sold their wares for rouble doubles, which they could use to buy food for their families, as well as pay the king. In turn, the villagers happily sold their goods and services to the three men, and so they likewise had rouble doubles to pay the king. And so the king's unit of account became used as a medium of exchange. What's more, the king was so happy with all his kingly stuff that he requested the villagers make things that would be of benefit to all. The king paid rouble doubles to villagers to work as doctors and teachers and road builders and scientists and musicians and many other things besides. The village prospered, for the monetary system underpinned a diversification of labour. None of the villagers ever thought to use barter, and none ever did, for this is the true story of money. And the king and the villagers lived happily ever after. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. The story of money offers us many insights. 
It reminds us that money is something we design. Money is a human construct. The design of currency is in the rules the king made, or what we would call laws. The king designed the currency as the only thing that could pay what these days we would call a tax liability. Clearly, the reason the king created a tax liability was in order to get stuff like a crown. When talking about the present-day Australian monetary system, economists say taxes drive the desire for the currency. So we can see in the story how it would have been impossible for the king to demand ruble doubles from the villagers before he spent the ruble doubles. In the same way, the Australian federal government spends the dollars into the economy before it taxes us. The Australian federal government does not tax us in order to get the dollars to spend. Remember, the federal government is not like state and local governments. They do tax us to spend. Like you and me, they're currency users. But the Australian federal government is unique in the country because it issues the currency, as backed up by our constitution. If you ask most people, why are you willing to accept worthless bits of paper known as dollars for your hard work or for your goods and services? Most people will usually say because someone else will accept the paper in the future. The complexity of our economy obscures the fact that everyone accepts the government's dollars because somewhere in the economy, someone has a need to get those dollars to pay taxes as enforced by the government. This means you can use the dollars everywhere else in the economy. A way to think about $100 is to see it as a tax credit for $100. $100 also functions as a $100 claim on goods and services in the Australian economy. So if you spend $100, that money functions as a means of exchange. If you put the $100 in a bank, that money is functioning as a store of value. But its primary function is as a tax credit in the government's unit of account. We can also see from the story of money that money is used between an authority and the citizens before it is used between citizens. The big lesson here is that money existed before markets. Tell that to your free marketeer friend who thinks governments should get out of markets. Governments are what make markets possible. The money story explains how a government creates currency. Now we'll look at the second idea about the nature of money. This is the idea that money is a subset of those social agreements known as IOUs. When I get confused by conversations about money, I come back to the idea that money is a special kind of IOU. Money is a tradable IOU. In this next piece, we'll hear me say that I think of the IOU relationship as an obligation or a debt. 
But I would like to correct myself because that's just one half of the relationship. For example, if I write on a piece of paper, I owe Kevin $100. From my point of view, I have a debt to Kevin. From Kevin's point of view, he has a credit. From my point of view, that IOU is a liability. From Kevin's point of view, that IOU is an asset. Economists and finance people often throw around these words, credit and debt and assets and liabilities. And sometimes they're referring to one side and sometimes they're referring to both sides of the relationship. But you can usually figure out what they're talking about if you remember an IOU has two points of view. And this is why double entry accounting is what keeps track of IOUs. You need to keep track of both sides of the relationship. Okay, now we'll look at money as an IOU by looking at what actually happens in our present day monetary system. This is from a conversation we had with economist Dr. Stephen Hale back in 2020. By the way, Dr. Hale has in his career taught central bankers. You know, one of the things that's really astounded me as I start to learn about macroeconomics, that there are actually different kinds of money whizzing around in the economy. Because I guess there's this idea that money comes into existence when governments spend, and that it also comes into existence when banks lend. So how is money created? Like, where does money come from? Tell me what money is. What do you think? (laughs) We can do the reverse interview here. I'm only saying because there is no general agreement on what money is. Oh, okay. It's it's one. (laughs) No wonder I don't know what money is. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I've started to think of money primarily as an IOU. So there's an I, there's a relationship, and there's a U. There's two parties involved. And they're doing something together. And what they're doing is they're creating an obligation or what in the economic world would be called a debt. Yeah. Well, let, let's start with the concept of a currency and the government being the currency issuer. And they've decided we're going to have a currency called the Australian dollar. The government sits at the top of our monetary hierarchy, at the top of our financial system. The government buys some stuff having previously ensured that there would be a demand for that currency by creating taxes that people are going to have to pay in the future in that currency, which means people need to get that currency. And its agent, the Reserve Bank of Australia, spends some of those dollars into the monetary system, creates some currency on behalf of the government, The government can just leave that money in the system indefinitely. It's money that the government has spent into the system and not withdrawn from the system yet. People will call it the government's debt, but I often call it the net money supply. This has been created by the currency issuer. The currency issuer is at the top of the monetary system. Okay. So far, the only money in the system is money that government has spent into the system. Now, um, there's nothing to stop institutions outside the government from writing IOUs, where that IOU is denominated in the currency that the government has issued, where they obtain goods and services from somebody else and promise to pay for those goods and services at some point in the future. That's an IOU. If the people writing those IOUs, are well-respected and have a very good reputation in the community, then you could imagine those IOUs being treated by people as money as well. But they're a different form of money. They're further down the monetary pyramid or the monetary hierarchy, and people are only accepting them as money because they are confident that they can be converted into the government's currency. Hyman Minsky, a long time ago, said anyone can create money. Mm -hmm. The problem lies in getting it accepted. Now, we have created privileged institutions 
And those institutions are what in Australia we call authorised deposit taking institutions. Those authorised deposit taking institutions are able to issue IOUs, which we regard as money, and so which are included in every measure of the money supply, except something called the monetary base that only includes government currency. Virtually all of what's included in broad measures of the money supply, like M3, is our deposits with banks and other authorised deposit taking institutions. And all that those deposits are, are IOUs of those banks and other authorised deposit taking institutions. How are those deposit liabilities created? Anne goes into the Bendigo Bank and takes out a loan. When you do that, you are exchanging an IOU with Bendigo Bank. You're giving Bendigo Bank your IOU, which doesn't have the status of money. It's just a loan agreement that you've signed. But the deposit which has been created for you at Bendigo Bank, that is now part of the money supply because when you spend those funds, the Bendigo Bank will need to have reserves at the RBA on which it can draw. Right. This is only possible because Bendigo Bank and the other banks have guaranteed access to government currency in the form of electronic balances that they hold at the government's agent, the Reserve Bank of Australia. So the dollars in your bank account have value and are part of the money supply because there is a guarantee that they can be converted into government money. Oh, okay. And what this means, to go back to where you started with the conversation, is that in practice, although there's really only one form of money out there, there are two ways in which that money can be created. One is that it can be spent into the system by our monetary sovereign government, and the other one is that it can be borrowed into existence by the rest of us. We're talking now about two ways money can be created. That seems to me a really fundamental distinction to understand. And so what's the situation in Australia? Like what's the ratio of those two different ways that money is being created in the economy now? When people talk about the money supply, they're generally talking about something called M3. Right. When you look at a broad measure of the money supply like M3, well over 90% of it is those deposit liabilities, those IOUs that banks and ADIs have to us, which have, in the majority of cases, been created as a result of you or me or a small business or, for that matter, a state government taking out a loan. Uh, this is something which has been interesting to me for quite some time. Is I've been trying to figure out what percentage of the currency base is M zero or government created currency, and how much how much is in the private banking system. You're saying it's about ten percent M zero currency, uh, roughly. It's less than ten percent, but that doesn't matter because government bonds are not included in the way the RBA officially measures the money supply. Mm -hmm. So it distorts things and it makes people imagine that the admittedly very important credit creation by private banks is the overwhelmingly important part of the story when it isn't. So if if you add the, uh, the monetary base and government bonds, is that larger than the private banking sector created currency? No. But I think it's reasonable to say indirectly, maybe 60% of it's created through bank lending and 40% through deficit spending by the government. So that's going back again to the issue of uh, what to include in a measure of the money supply. There's no general agreement on what money is. Keynes wrote in a footnote in the general theory, an interesting question was where to draw the line between what you call money and what you call debt. And he said, there's, there's no correct answer to that. You just need to do it in whatever way is convenient. So now we can think of money as a special kind of IOU. Money is an IOU which is tradable or which is accepted by a third party in payment for something. 
And currency is a special kind of tradable IOU because it gets its tradability by being accepted as payment for taxes. As Stephen said, at what point the tradability of an IOU means an IOU is money is a grey area. And all manner of IOUs are tradable in our society, including gift vouchers, coupons, postage stamps and frequent flyer miles. You're with Anne and Kev on Radio MMT. At 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne, Australia. And wherever you get your podcasts. Economics for the rest of us. There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new t-shirt or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter at 3CR and Instagram at 3CR Melbourne. But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855am. Keep in touch. 3cr.org.au You're on 3CR with Anne and Kev and we're taking a look at money from the perspective of modern monetary theory. Every dollar the government spends is a new dollar. Let's have a couple of practical examples. Uh, Every time you receive something from the government, you'll notice that it comes from the Reserve Bank of Australia. So if you get a Medicare refund, it'll be from the Reserve Bank of Australia. Your ATO uh, tax return refund will be from the, the uh, Reserve Bank of Australia. Oh, go look at the fine print. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you receive a pension, it'll be from the Reserve Bank of Australia. If you work for an organisation that's been subcontracted to build tunnels for the federal government, your money will come from the Reserve Bank of Australia. The the notes that you have in your wallet, if you have currency, <laughs> will say from the Reserve Bank of Australia. Uh-huh. So every time they produce some form of currency, it comes from the Reserve Bank of Australia and it's new. I mean, that's the physical proof of it. Uh, money flows out through government spending and it's retrieved through taxation. So... Every dollar that is spent by government is a new dollar, and some of those dollars are then retrieved and extinguished through taxation. There's no such thing as recycling dollars, is there? Um, And in fact, um, if you have a look at the economic textbooks, they actually did burn the real dollars that were received in taxation. The actual paper? Somewhere in the States during the 1800s. It was one of those early American colonies, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they created their own currency and they and they then burnt it when they received it. Right. So the government can only spend by creating dollars and so every time it spends, it's creating new dollars. So only the central bank can, by law, create IOUs that are the actual currency. You know, they're the dollars. <laughs> so what ensures that other IOUs will be as tradable as the currency. For example, why should the Commonwealth Bank accept IOUs produced by Westpac, which are just their bank credit, denominated in Australian dollars? It's just Westpac writing IOU $100. (laughs) As Stephen Hale explained, it depends on this hierarchy of money. The tradability of an IOU depends on whether it is accepted at the next level up in the money pyramid. So the idea of a money pyramid is a good way of thinking about the monetary system. Currency created by our central bank, otherwise known as the Reserve Bank of Australia, that currency sits at the top of the money pyramid. The rest of the pyramid cannot create currency. That's illegal and it is called counterfeiting. So I can't draw a bunch of squiggles on a piece of paper and pass it off as a $100 note. But I can write on a piece of paper 
I owe you $100 and give it to Kevin. So the rest of the economy can create IOUs denominated in dollars. So back to the pyramid, the commercial banks are the next level down underneath the central bank. When commercial banks create IOUs denominated in dollars, these bank IOUs look like the currency. As users, we don't know the difference. The money a commercial bank creates, if, for example, it lends you $50,000, that looks like $50,000 in your bank account. That's because the government has given commercial banks special permission to create bank IOUs called dollars. The commercial bank promises to convert its bank IOUs into the actual currency at any time. And the central bank backs up that promise. So that's why everyone accepts dollar-denominated bank credits and they circulate just like the government's currency. And this is what keeps the payment system of the economy ticking over smoothly. Without this pyramid, we would have something like what was going on in the days of the American colonies. So your local general store might have a board outside showing the dozens of different types of money they'll accept, along with their exchange rates. So that would be money or IOUs created by different towns or different banks or other merchants. It was very confusing and complicated. Finally, at the bottom of the pyramid, we have households and businesses. Businesses often run themselves on IOUs denominated in dollars. Those IOUs we call outstanding invoices. At the very bottom of the pyramid are you and me. <laughs> if I write on a piece of paper, I owe Kevin one beer, then I've created an IOU denominated in beers. If I write on a piece of paper, I owe Kevin $20. I have created an IOU denominated in dollars. If Kevin puts that IOU in his pocket and walks up to his buddy Pete and Pete agrees to give Kevin a ride home in exchange for my $20 IOU, my IOU is now technically money. That's because Kevin has been able to trade my IOU for goods and services. But it's unlikely anyone else would accept my bit of paper that says, I owe Kevin $20 in payment for something. Anyone can create money. The difficulty is in getting it accepted. You can also look at the pyramid from the bottom up, which Darren Quinn once explained to me. As Simon Minsky, a late great economist, taught us, anyone can create money. You and I can create money. We won't call it that, but that's essentially what a credit or an IOU is. But mm -hmm. if we put it down on a piece of paper, we're going to have a bit of trouble getting the banks to accept it, an IOU written on a piece of paper. But that's the catch. Banks write up IOUs to each other and you and me, but the next authority up settles the debt, clears the debt. Now, the banks do that with the state, the government, which is who runs the central bank. The central bank is the bank of the banks, the RBA in our case. What we're saying is that modern monetary theory does include the banking system in its picture? Yes. Like, picture a pyramid with the central bank at top, then picture all your banks underneath the central bank, the banks that are their accounts with the central bank or the government. Then underneath the banks, picture all your businesses, businesses settle their accounts with the banks. Picture your households where you and I live. Like put that on my account for me at a business place. Well, the business has got your IOU and you settle at the end of the whatever period. As Minsky said, anyone could create money, but it's always settled at the next level up. So picture a pyramid. So, the reason you're willing to do 35 hours a week of work in exchange for your boss's IOUs 
otherwise known as a paycheck, is because you're confident that the boss's IOU will be accepted at any bank. And the reason your bank will accept the IOU of your boss's bank is because the IOUs of both banks will be accepted by the central bank. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet. www.3cr.org.au So we're thinking of currency as a special kind of tradable IOU. Currency gains its value or tradability from being accepted as payment for taxes. So we can think of a dollar as a tradable tax credit. Now what's involved in creating these tradable tax credits? As you might have guessed by now, it is not by turning on a printer. Printing money, printing print money, print money to just spend print money without limits. You can spend and spend and spend. Yeah, so one of the things to note about what Stephen was saying is that in both cases, whenever the government is creating money or whether the banks are creating money, they're doing the same thing. They're doing it in the same way, which is they're creating it mostly by doing this, which is they're just typing on keyboards. <laughs> so that's what they call fiat money. In other words, it's not like they're going and creating little gold coins or anything. Chloe Boris from Network 10. Could you please explain in the simplest terms, perhaps keeping in mind your audience outside of this room, where does the RBA get that money from? Is it simply a matter of printing new money? How does it work? Well, it's not, <laughs> it's not printing money. We don't operate that way anymore, obviously, because we live in an electronic world. The way we pay for that is credit the bank's account at the Reserve Bank, and that creates the money electronically. We can create money electronically, and that's what we do these days. Thank you. The central bank is the only one who can do that. That's the unique feature of a central bank, and um, that's why you want, this is my final point here, that's why you want a lot of governance over the process of doing that. You wouldn't want, um, you wouldn't want everyone to be able to do this, would you? Just, so you've got a governance, you've got kind of strong board with a mandate, legal responsibilities. Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe. We take it incredibly seriously and you know, it's a heavy responsibility to be able to just create money like that. The process for creating money looks like a parliamentary process, followed by a very secure accounting process. So the Australian Federal Government debates and passes an appropriation bill. The Treasury, using the mechanism of the central bank, then acts as instructed to create the money required by the appropriation bill. The central bank creates the money by typing numbers into appropriate bank accounts. This is how the federal government creates Australian dollars when it spends. It can only spend dollars by creating dollars. It can only create dollars by spending dollars. So the Australian federal government does not tax and it does not borrow in order to get the money. So the Australian federal government can never run out of Australian dollars. The Australian federal government can always afford to purchase whatever is for sale in Australian dollars. MMT economists gleefully point out that back in 2020, the government's response under Federal Treasurer Josh Frydenberg confirmed the MMT understanding of how money is created. When the pandemic struck, the vital support for the economy was the government's immediate commitment to engage in what people would have seen previously as unthinkably high levels of deficit spending. 
Dr. Stephen Hale. They were prepared basically to do $200 billion worth of deficit spending, which means running a deficit maybe 10% of gross domestic product. Now, people might have imagined that before they could do that, they'd have to go and borrow $200 billion. Let me just give you a statistic you could throw at people. In order for the government to borrow, that involves the government selling government bonds. The only way that the private sector can buy government bonds, the only way institutionally it's possible, is to use the reserves that the private banks have at the RBA to pay for them. In March, the total amount of reserves that the banks held at the RBA was about $30 billion. <laughs> so it was literally impossible for the government to borrow that money from the private sector before they spent it because they were planning to borrow across the year seven times as much as the total amount of exchange settlement account reserves in existence. <laughs> in other words, the government had to spend the money into the system or, and this has happened a bit too, the RBA had to lend the money to the banks before the banks could buy these treasury bonds. The government said, okay, we're gonna do $200 billion worth of deficit spending and hang on a minute, there is only $30 billion there in the system. Wonderful. So we've literally had a description of how our monetary system works, which is exactly along the lines of modern monetary theory and just makes the, the normal narrative you get about government borrowing look completely ridiculous because we've got to spend the money into the system before we can, in inverted commas, borrow it back. As a very right-wing economist called Robert Lucas, who has a Nobel Prize, who is even more right-wing than Josh Frydenberg, said in 2008, everyone is a Keynesian in a foxhole. <laughs> they, they didn't have any choice but to engage in not a high enough level, but a high level of deficit spending starting in March. And that's exactly what they did. What MNT economists have said all along. Dr. Stephen Hale. Which is that the Australian Commonwealth Government cannot run out of Australian dollars, given that it's a monetary sovereign currency issuer. Our consolidated government sector cannot ever run out of Australian dollars. This was always true. It's now more obviously true. It's obvious to everybody that all the RBA is doing is using a computer keyboard. Where are these exchange settlement account reserves coming from? From a keyboard like the one I'm sitting behind at the moment. People who talk about the Australian government running out of money are making the mistake of thinking of money as a physical thing. They're missing that for the federal government, the limits on how many dollars the government can spend is not the availability of dollars the king could never run out of ruble doobles. A good image for thinking about the non-physical nature of money is to think of it as like points in a football game. Franklin for 12, 13, 13! He's kicked 13 on the side! The umpire is keeping score. The umpire is doing accounting. By this image, you can see how ridiculous it would be for an umpire at a football game to stop the game halfway through because he's run out of points <laughs> or because he wants to save some points for the next game. But this is exactly what our politicians are saying to us all the time. Dead. 
default, mortgaging the future, debt, debt, default, mortgaging the future, mortgaging, mortgaging, mortgaging the future, the future. Uh, my job is to paint the true picture uh, of the economy and our economic challenges. Treasurer Jim Chalmers, speaking at a press conference on the 18th of July, 2022. We take our fiscal constraints seriously. A uh, trillion dollars in debt costing more and more to service uh, means that we have to be upfront with people. We can't do everything that we would like to do. We can't even afford uh, the good ideas that people put to us. That's just the reality. You don't have to take the word of any MMTR about the government's ability to create money out of thin air. You could take the word of two ex-chairmen of the US Federal Reserve, America's central bank equivalent, and one governor of the Reserve Bank of Australia, Australia's central bank in the form of Alan Greenspan, Ben Bernanke and Philip Lowe. It's not tax money. There's nothing to prevent the federal government from creating as much money as it wants and paying it to somebody. We simply use the computer to mark up the uh, size of the account. We can create money electronically and that's what we do these days. It's a heavy responsibility to be able to just create money like that. Based on our new understanding of money, we threw a few curveballs at Dr Stephen Hale, which he expertly fielded. So I've got a bunch of questions that I think actually arise from misunderstanding the fact that there are different types of IOUs and therefore different kinds of money. This is my all-time favourite one. If banks create money, why do they need to go to the government to get bailed out? Why don't they just make the money and bail themselves out? <laughs> okay. Banks are licensed to create money, mainly by lending to us. But their ability to do that depends, first of all, on the fact that they have access to reserves at the RBA. And secondly, their ability to do that is constrained by the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority, or APRA. The RBA used to, to do that, but for the last 20 years or so, it's been a separate institution. And if they become what APRA would describe as insolvent, which means they ever have negative net assets, or to put it another way, if they create loans which people don't repay, then under the legislation, they're supposed to be closed down. Mm -hmm. They can create deposit liabilities for themselves, IOUs for themselves, which are included in the money supply, but they then have to make good on those IOUs. They have to have reserves at the RBA. If they don't have reserves at the RBA, they have to borrow them from someone, mm -hmm. and they won't be able to do that if they're insolvent. What you often hear with MMT is that the Australian federal government as a currency issuer has a monopoly on the creation of money. And yet, we've just discovered banks also create money. So how can we be saying that the government has a monopoly on the creation of money? We don't. We say the government has a monopoly on the creation of currency. Aha! That's the distinction. They have a monopoly on the creation of what's sometimes called the monetary base. The monetary base is physical currency. Well, nobody else can, can create that or they get put in prison. And it also includes the reserves that our authorised deposit takers, our banks, have at the RBA itself. Now, those reserves can only be created as a result of the government spending them into existence or the RBA lending them into existence. Mm -hmm. And the whole system depends on those reserves. It's only because your bank has access to those reserves that your bank can operate as a bank and accept deposits anyway. People say, well, MMT talks about currency issuers and currency users. 
So the Australian Federal Government would be the currency issuer. You and I are the users. Mm. But then what are banks by these categories? Are they a user or an issuer? They're a user. They can't issue currency and they can't increase the monetary base. They're in a privileged position compared to you and me because of their relationship with the RBA. But money is just an IOU, which is exchanged for goods and services. And this is one reason why these notions that people sometimes have about banning the private creation of money is actually an impossible thing to do. (laughs) You'd have to ban anybody ever giving anyone credit in order to ban the private creation of money. You mean I couldn't offer to buy Kevin a beer for doing me a (laughs) favour? Well, you wouldn't be able to sign an IOU for $5 or something because, hey, somebody might then swap that for a beer. Unless you're going to make that illegal, you can't make private money creation illegal. You wouldn't be able to run a tab at the bar. Maybe not. And what we've got basically is we've got a situation where the great majority of private money creation we have regulated and supervised. You then have to look at how you regulate and supervise it. Uh, You could even, as Bill Mitchell recommends, you could even nationalise the banking system. But there'd still be nothing stopping a big company like Apple issuing IOUs, which people then might choose to use in exchange for goods and services. You still wouldn't have banned private money creation. What about going the other way? Like, would it be possible to run an economy purely on bank-created money, on bank IOUs, and ditch the government currency? I suppose it's possible to imagine theoretically, but I don't know of any historical examples. Every successful currency system, at least at its inception, has had a strong central government collecting taxes in that currency. The tax collection, of course, creates the demand for the currency in the first place. Mm -hmm. And of course, a problem with the euro is it's an attempt to set up a currency without a strong central government. Most modern monetary theory economists think the euro was a terrible idea, Mm -hmm. basically because there is no tax collecting, currency issuing, federal government at its centre, sitting above the European Central Bank. So, you know, I don't think of money as the root of all evil. Money is an incredibly powerful tool for organising ourselves as a society. Think of all those interlocking promises or obligations or debts and credits. The evil lies in those who would mislead us about money, whether out of ignorance or hmm, selfish desire. Well, look, we've been really clear about the rate of job seeker. We've been really clear that um, at the moment, um, in the October budget, this is not something that we're going to proceed with. Debt, default, mortgaging the future, the future. Now, I'm just going to raise this single point. Every time we talk about money, Mm. the more we talk about money, the more I come to realise that money provides a fertile ground for capitalism because money means that you can accumulate profit, Mm. the whole profit motive, you know, and where that profit goes to. And none of this could exist if you didn't have a monetary system. Mm -hmm. And I keep on reflecting back to we live on this island nation and if we were here 300 years ago, (laughs) you'd be living in a very different community where you couldn't accumulate monetary profit. But be careful here, Kevin, because... I don't think you need to equate a monetary system with a for-profit system. So you do not have to have capitalism with a monetary system. Well, see, this is where I fundamentally disagree. (laughs) (laughs) Because I think if you have a monetary system, you have created a system where you can accumulate excess wealth. A monetary system, all it is, is a set of rules, a set of legal rules. That's all it is, and you can change those laws. So, for example you could have negative interest rates on bank balances. So it would actually deter you from trying to store up money. Okay, that's good. And I think what we need to change is not the the fact of money, not having money, because, of course, money's existed for 5,000 years. So obviously... Not here. <laughs> in Europe, 
On the European continent, money existed for at least 5,000 years, so it was way before capitalism. So what we need to change are the rules and the uses of money, not the fact of money itself. And the reason I would want to keep money is because it does allow for a more complex economy. And also, I wonder how much less of a footprint we would uh, leave on the world if we didn't have that profit motive. What I think with your position is that if you want to get rid of a monetary system, what you're saying is you want to get rid of civilization as we know it. Yes. So not just capitalism, but civilization is what you're going to get rid of. I wanted to arrive here 300 years ago. I reckon it would have been fantastic. I would have been extremely interested to see how this place operated. The dynamics of a non-profit, non-capitalist society, which was only interested in its immediate sustainability. But I'd be fascinated to see how a community operated in a non-profit environment. Well, I don't argue that it was a very functional alternative to a monetary system. I still think we can have the best of both worlds. <laughs> uh, we've got to wind up. Matt we Alves. do. We do. Thanks for being with us for the hour and join us again on March the 24th. March the 24th. Uh, and uh, we'll see you soon. See you then. You've been listening to Radio MMT with Anne and Kev. We'd love your feedback. Email us on radiommt at gmail.com or search Radio MMT on social media. Listen to this show anytime, wherever you get your podcasts or on 3cr.org.au forward slash Radio MMT. Support this show and the station by subscribing to 3cr.org.au and mention Radio MMT. We thank all our guests... And we thank economist Professor Bill Mitchell and his mmted.org, educating the masses on modern monetary theory. And thank you to our listening listeners for listening. And I thank you, Kevin. And I thank you, Anne. So what's planned for next week? Kevin, there is still so much to talk about. We've got to expose all this rotten economics. Well, yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's good, and I get it. Do you reckon we could use a bit more music? Well, I made a list of all these terrible economic theories. Like, I've heard of the theory of comparative advantage or the quantity theory of money or the loanable funds theory. Have you heard of a band called Single Gun Theory? Like, they're a really good band. <laughs> I'm sure there's a whole range of, like, macroeconomic music that I could bring into the show. Yeah, yeah, but we really need to do marginal productivity theory, not to mention the natural rate of unemployment and the money multiplier. You've got a pretty good singing voice. I play bass. <laughs> Bill, Bill, he plays guitar. I reckon we could form a macroeconomics band. Like, we could deliver this whole message by music. Well, we could call the band the Permanent Income Hypothesis or the Ricardian Equivalence or Rational Expectations. I think we're onto something here. We're trying to make macroeconomics more interesting to the masses. We're going to, like, form this band and sing it to them. And we're going we're to bring the economists in. We're going to get musical. We're going to do the regression theory of money to music. That would work. That's good. Regression theory of money. What runs is regression? Regression, depression, instant. <laughs> there's, there's a world of other things. This is the league. This is the league. No build for you. Like you'll be exposed. Have you ever sung before in a band? No, you, you do not want to hear me sing, Kevin. What's the We'll get there, we'll get there. How's about general equilibrium? You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.